Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask you, Lord, to reveal Scripture to us, Lord. And always that, as you do that, reveal Jesus afresh to us. Holy Spirit, will you come? Take away every tiredness, O oh Lord. Refresh us, O oh Lord, so that, Lord, we will be ready to receive what you want to say to us and what you want to teach us tonight. Be with me also as I declare this. Enable me, empower me, O oh Lord, and be with us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Welcome back to Kingdom 101. Now, it's been a while since we had a teaching. So let me just welcome you back to Mount Makarios. In case you are here for the first time or you're listening to this message for the very, very first time, uh, we are on a journey up Mount Makarios. And Makarios is a Greek term for the word blessedness. And simply put, this is our little jargon here of Jesus' sermon on the mount. And I hope you will enjoy this journey. But I'm also here to remind you that the journey up and the way up Mount Makarios actually is down. It's upside down, right? If you look at the Beatitudes that Jesus started with, from poor in spirit to those who mourn, those who are meek, all the way through to those who are persecuted, the way up Makarios is actually downwards. It runs opposite to how the world sees and defines blessedness. In a word, we say it's counter-cultural, all right? It is just opposite, it's upside down. But don't forget that it's not about trying harder, it's about absolute surrender, absolute surrender. And so, look at the Beatitudes. You press the lift button, it takes you from B1 to B2 to B3 and all the way down to B8. Now, some of you may not like the going down picture very much, so I'll let you go up. You can also look at the Beatitudes like rungs on a ladder. And you have to start from the lowest rung in that to be broken, to be poor in spirit. And slowly, as you understand this, you lay foundation upon foundation upon foundation and you move up in your understanding. Now, this evening, we are coming into the fourth Beatitude. We've already examined blessed are those who are poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. But tonight, we will look at being hungry and being thirsty. The verse is Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I hope you have your Bibles with you, whether is it um, an electronic one or a physical one. Just have it ready. We'll be flipping through some passages, and you can follow me if you would like to do that. Let's look at these two words, hunger and thirst. Let's focus on these two words first. Hunger and thirst is really a very basic human need. Who wants to say amen? Now we understand this, right? If you look at a little baby, when he or she is hungry or when he or she is thirsty, what do they do? They cry. And after they eat, they go to sleep, they wake up, they're hungry again, they're thirsty again, and they cy again. And that's the entire uh, a cycle of how a baby is, right? Those mothers would understand. Oh, giving you nightmares, right, when you remember this. All they do is eat and sleep and then cry, eat and sleep, and then after that cry. So hunger and thirst is a very, very basic need. But even as we look at these two words and look at this picture, perhaps it's not strong enough. In the original text, 
it actually means that to be hungry, it means to be starving, to be, to be famished. To be thirsty is to be so parched and so dry, bone dry we call it. That would give a better picture. And so it's not just a little baby in a nice, you know, comfortable cot crying. I believe Jesus was referring to a certain group of people who were desperate, who, who were hungry, who were thirsty, those who are poor, those who are oppressed, those who have been passed over. And I believe this is a much bigger picture. If we have traveled into a third world country, uh, India, for example, you know, you, you walk in, along the streets, you see all these, the beggars, the, the children who are uh, dirty, you know, covered with soot and picking up crumbs and things from the floor. They are hungry, they are thirsty. And that's the kind of a picture when Jesus says, blessed are those who are hungry and those who are thirsty. Desperate, yearning, starving, famished. Israel, when they were saved out of Egypt and God brought them into the wilderness, almost immediately after we have the, a beautiful song recorded in Ex Exodus chapter 15, we have a record of them coming into the wilderness of Shur. And the first thing they said, What shall we drink? Right? They, they came to a, a stream or waters that were bitter and they were really upset. Now, what shall we drink? They were thirsty. After that beautiful miracle, they found themselves in the wilderness of sin in the very next chapter. Isn't it interesting? First, they are in the wilderness of Shur. Then they find themselves in the wilderness of sin. Shur, sin. Well, cannot win. Eh? No wonder they had so many problems. And so they are now in the wilderness of sin, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Their very first challenges were one of thirst and one of hunger. And they cried out to the Lord and God gave them what was needed. They gave, he gave them sweet water from the bitter waters and God gave them manna and God gave them quails. So it's not just about a basic human need in the physical that God would provide. It was really a reliance upon who God is. So later on in the Psalms, you find that the Psalmists, although in the land already, they would use the same picture of hungering and thirsting for God. So if you look at Psalm 42 verses 1 to 3, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Right? It's the same picture. It is, it is that same desperation, the crying out, that we need this basic need, not just food, but also spiritually. And again, in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. I am hungering after you. I need more of you, you know. If, Lord, you do not sustain me, then I am as good as dead. This should be our cry, is it not? This is what it should be. Only God can satisfy us. The sad thing is, we find ourselves hungering and thirsting after the things of the world. And that's why we can find no satisfaction in all these things. In the book of Jeremiah, God spoke through this prophet Jeremiah. He tells Israel, you know what's the problem with all of you? You have hewn for yourself broken cisterns, right? Water is what we need. It's a basic need. 
But you have a system that is broken. You keep filling it and it keeps leaking. You keep filling it and you keep leaking. And the problem is you look at all these things, but you're missing the one who is the fountain, the source of this water that is everlasting. I am the one that will meet your hunger. I am the one that will meet your thirst. Stop pursuing these meaningless things that will never, never satisfy. You see, to hunger and to thirst for God is really to recognize our great need for Him. And if you are clamoring after God, if you're saying, Lord, I need you, let me just warn all of us that it's not just needing God for the sake of of just Him helping us get through something or giving us the things that you want. You know what we're really seeking for? If you understand a biblical context, they were crying out for God because they were facing unrighteousness. So in their crying out to the Lord, they were crying out for righteousness. Without God, there's no righteousness. And when there's no righteousness, no wonder they are oppressed. No wonder they are bullied. No wonder they are cheated. No wonder they are passed over. No wonder they are pressed down. Oh God, help me out of this unrighteousness. And so when we look at the hungering and the thirsting after God, Let me suggest this to you. To hunger and to thirst for God is really to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Otherwise, why do we need God? We don't need Him. If it's only to give us nice things and beautiful things, I think we have missed the picture. Even as we declare this point, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, we have to ask ourselves, what is righteousness. These are those words that we hear in church, in Christian circles, over and over again. But if you would sit down over a table, over a cup of coffee with someone, and someone asks you, can you define righteousness for me? Do you think you'll be able to do it? And if you can't, then what would you be hungering for? You can't hunger for something that you don't know or you don't understand. So you can declare this phrase a thousand times and not understand what you are hungering for. I mean, an angmore, a foreigner who comes into Singapore won't know how to hunger for char kway teow. Right? He doesn't even know what it is. But after he has tasted it, now whether he likes it or not, that's another thing. But you need to know what righteousness is before you can hunger for it. So let's do a little word study down here. The word righteousness comes from this word pronounced dikaiosune. Dikaiosune. That means literally righteousness, or shall we say justness. Of course, we don't use the word justness in our language, we say justice. It is the state of being morally right or justifiable according to an acceptable standard. This word dikaiosune comes from that word dikaios, which is derived from the original that now decay. Now, decay means a certain standard, something that's accepted as a standard. And once you say this is the standard, then you would expect a certain behavior out of this standard. So if we say you have to be here by 7.30, now that's a standard that we set. So what is the expected behavior? that we should be here by 7.30. You, you follow? Now, the word dikaios 
then now refers to a person who is right or righteous or just. So if you arrived at 7.30, you are righteous. Those who came after 7.30, oh, you are unrighteous. <laughs> you are not right. Okay, let's put it that way, okay? Yeah? And so this word dikaios can also be translated just. So righteousness comes from that. Righteousness from the word righteous, justness, therefore, from the word just. Is that okay for everyone? Right? So really, let's summarize this. Righteousness is really about standards. That's the easiest way to sort of uh, you know, uh, localize it and make it easier to understand. But we have to ask ourselves, what then is this standard? What is the acceptable standard? I mean, I said 7.30. Maybe for you, 7.45 would be the standard. Someone else says, no, no, it has to be 7.15. Are you following? So our standards can be very subjective, right or not? What is the acceptable standard? It's not just any standard. And that's why we have to add in this one word. It has to be God's righteousness. It has to be God's standards. And that is the one that is unmovable. That's the one that is unshakable. It doesn't matter what you think or what I think. It is what God says. That makes all the difference. The problem that we are experiencing in our world is that we have set our own standards. We have begun to define what we believe to be right according to our own eyes. Now, how does God reveal His standard? How does God reveal His righteousness? If you do a concordant search and you put the words righteousness together with the word truth, you will get quite a few hits. It's always paired up and mentioned together. We are also told that His law is also the truth. So these are words that might be synonymous or we can take them to mean the same thing. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. This standard will stand forever. Now look at the second part. Your law is truth. What is the problem today? Truth is being shifted. Am I right? Truth is being redefined. Truth is being rejected. What's worse in the church? Law is being done away with. We look at it and we say, we don't want law anymore. So we don't want law, we change truth. Now how do we understand righteousness? Big problem, you see that? God's righteousness is revealed through His law, which declares His truth. It's verifiable. Then we ask this question, but what about Gentiles? I mean, the law was given to God's covenant people, Israel. What about Gentiles? Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. He worded it this way, Even Gentiles who don't have the law, capital L, by nature do the things of the law. And although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now you've got to read Paul when you're awake. Right? When you're sleepy, you cannot read Paul. <laughs> it's like, huh? They don't have the law, but by nature... They do the law. So although they don't have the law, since they have their own law, that's a law to themselves. You, are you following? But you and I also know you can set whatever standard we want and we will still break it. 
it doesn't have to be God's standard. You call your standard, I'll still struggle with your standard. And so, don't say, oh, I don't know the law, so I'm okay. No. Any standard you put, I tell you, we break. That's our problem. And so the law is not to make one righteous. The law is to reveal how unrighteous we all are. And so Paul gives a big conclusion. There is none righteous. No, not one. That's bad news. That's really bad news. So if we want to understand righteousness, we've got to go and start with the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. Because that is where Paul begins his argument in Romans chapter 1, verses 15 to 19. Of course, we know this verses fairly well. But our problem again is that usually we take it apart. So let's read this whole passage in its context. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in this gospel, in this good news of the kingdom, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Then he gives the reason. Because of for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Now I love to read the Bible in chunks because it gives us a bigger picture and in that a much clearer one. I was a little surprised when I read this very first verse there. Paul says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are also, who are in Rome. Now who was Paul writing to? Paul was writing to the church in Rome, amen? Now don't you think that the church would have already known the gospel? Paul was writing to the church and declaring the good news still. And I believe that's what we need to be doing today because today we have listened to a different good news. We've got to declare the good news according to how Paul declared it. The good news of the kingdom is that the king of this kingdom, and he's called the king of righteousness, his kingdom will be ruled by his standard, which is righteous. He is inviting everyone into his kingdom. And it's going to be good because it is a righteous kingdom. Everyone is struggling. We have already established this. That is bad news for all of us who do not understand this kingdom. It's because we are all unrighteous by our own standards and especially by God's standards. Every alternative kingdom is ruled by unrighteousness or at least our own idea of what righteousness is. So if we look at the good news of the kingdom, it involves unrighteousness into righteousness and salvation is simply that. A salvation out of the unrighteousness that we experience in our lives and in this world and into the righteousness of God. 
Salvation is first and foremost about righteousness and unrighteousness. See, today we just tell people, you be saved and you go to heaven. We don't talk about unrighteousness. We don't talk about righteousness. We just say you believe and you will go into a right place. You believe and there's nothing else you need to do anymore. You believe, come attend church, you know, and, and, and join a cell group and everything is going to be cool. And we don't understand the relationship between unrighteousness or righteousness or where salvation actually falls in. Now, if you have your concordance, again, you do another search. You type in the two words, salvation and righteousness, and you'll see even more verses coming out. They are always mentioned together. Always together. So when you think salvation, you've got to think righteousness. If you think righteousness, you've got to think salvation because that is the crux of what the good news is all about. Let me read one or two verses to you. Isaiah 56 verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep righteous. Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Can you see? My salvation is about to come, my righteousness to be revealed. Romans 10 verse 10, popular verse. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. These two words always go together. And the beautiful thing about the good news of the kingdom is that Paul declares this, that God reveals His righteousness, firstly, through the law. But His law, no one can keep. And so the good news is now He reveals His righteousness apart from the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. How does He reveal His Righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to read a little bit more deeply into this. God cannot just pardon sin without judging sin. He is righteous. If He just closes His eyes and says, never mind, never mind, it's okay. Then He's no longer righteous. Now, if we cannot believe Him for righteousness, then it's not good news at all. Sin must be judged. A penalty must be paid. And that's why He demonstrated this by sending His Son to be that substitute, to be that propitiation that would satisfy the righteousness of God. And now all that is required is for anyone who looks upon this, who understands it and sees this, to believe in this work of Jesus upon the cross and righteousness is imputed upon us. Righteousness is given to us. All we need to do is to believe by faith and we are thus given the gift of righteousness. Isn't that a good news? Right? It's good news because we don't have to work for it. We cannot work for it. As much as we want to try and do our very, very best, we will still fall short. Salvation is about righteousness. And so for all of us who have believed in the work of Jesus, have we been imputed upon us the righteousness of God? Amen? Hallelujah? Is that where the story ends? You can see there's a lot more space on the slides, so that means that's not the end of the story. Amen? Right? But we've made that the end, is it not? You're righteous now. Everything is cool. That's all you need to do. There's nothing you need to do, in fact. Right? So just hang loose and wait for the time where you get zapped up.
Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in the next chapter and he says, now you're no longer slaves of sin. Sin has no longer any more dominion over you, but you now have a new master. You are now slaves of righteousness. Say, so, oh, nobody told me that. Leh. You have a new master. Paul explains this clearly in Romans chapter 6. The one that you obey, that is the master. So if you still are obeying sin, then really you don't understand salvation. You may have been saved once, you may have come into that understanding, but you keep running back to the old master, then you need salvation all over again. But if you would be obedient to this new master called righteousness, then you would obey this master. But as slaves, you know, being... Okay, imagine this. If I was, this is not an accurate parallel. Imagine I was a domestic helper. And I know some of us have experienced transferring maids. Yes or no? Yeah. So I'm a maid on transfer. I've worked for uh, this household for five years, maybe for 10 years. And I've done fairly okay. And then I get transferred to another household. Do you think I can do things the same way? Well, some of it I can keep, Right? But I will have to learn new things right now, right? I have to learn what the master wants or what the ma'am or the sir desires and how this family takes. Similarly, if we are slaves of righteousness and we have been living in an unrighteous mindset, we need to now learn the way of righteousness. Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life. So now we have to learn a new way. He said, oh, for those who understand the law, say, oh, I know the way, what? I try to do it, I couldn't make it, so I don't try anymore. Paul says, no, it's no longer under the deadness of the old letter of the law, but you now serve in the newness of the Spirit. You want the way of righteousness? You've got to be led by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. The way of righteousness is the way of the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Be in sync with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, there is a way of righteousness that we are expected to learn and to know. The Apostle Peter warned not to forsake the way of righteousness. And so you find him saying in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, he says, you be careful of these false teachers because they have forsaken the right way. Would it be okay to reword that as the way of righteousness? There is a right way and there is a wrong way. There is no blanket policy that says if you believe in Jesus, then every way will be right. There is no such teaching. The apostles are very clear. You've got to know the way of righteousness and not forsake the right way. But these false teachers have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam. That's another teaching in itself. And this is happening in the church, you see. Where they tell you you're saved in Jesus Christ. Nothing you can do can take you out. So that's going to be cool. You are blessed. You are favored. Balaam told Balak, 
I cannot curse whom God has blessed. If you know this story in Numbers, I cannot curse these. God has blessed. And in that, that is true. You and I, we are blessed. But Balaam says, what I can't do against them on the outside, I can entice them to do to themselves from the inside. And so he entices them to sin, to have sexual immorality. And when they sin from the inside, they brought upon themselves again the consequence of that sin. Dear friends, don't be snooped. Don't be deceived. <laughs> there is a right way and there is a wrong way. You've got to learn the way of righteousness led by the Holy Spirit. But how would we know? Holy Spirit today can be so flying here, flying there, float in on clouds, you know, smoke machines and things like that. The word of righteousness is what keeps you on track. You learn the way of righteousness from the word of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Who says we don't have to learn righteousness? The imputation of righteousness upon us is so that we can be in right standing with God that in any way that we should be falling or you know, trip again, we can run straight into His presence without worrying that we will be zapped. That's our position with God that we can run in with our weakness. Jesus being our high priest interceding for us. But all Scripture is there to lead us and to guide us in righteousness. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 5 verse 13 had these very strong words to say to his audience. He says, you are all unskilled in the word of righteousness. You are unskilled. Now today, if those are proclaimed upon us, do you know it's, it's very paisele. We In Singapore, we are so academic, we are so smart, we've got scholars all over the place. Why should we be unskilled in the word of righteousness? And sadly, in the church, people are not reading the word of God. We are unskilled. You have to move from milk to solid food. And I heard a preacher say this once. You know what is solid food? Solid food is when you learn how to chew it yourself. I used to think that, you know, if I teach more deeply, I'm giving you more solid food, you know. Wow, you know, tonight, maybe I hope after you go home, you say, wow, I really had the meat of the word, man. But you know what? He gave a different perspective. However deep I try to teach you and however heavy this might come across to you, the fact of the matter is still, I have chewed it and I'm giving you chewed food and it's still not solid for you. You should be taking the meat of the word and eating and chewing it yourself. So if you come week after week, then I'm guilty of giving you chewed food. And you are happy to take it. And we end up being unskilled in the word of righteousness. But what are slaves to be doing? Slaves are there for a reason. Slaves do the work. Out of understanding the way of righteousness, grounded upon the word of righteousness. We are to move forward to do the works of righteousness. Do you know how you can be skilled in the word of righteousness? Even as you move from milk to solid food. The writer put it very clearly. 
who by reason of use will be able to discern good and evil. You've got to use it. You have to work it out. You have to walk in it. You have to live it. You have to put it into practice by reason of use. Then you learn how to discern. Will you make mistakes? Yes. Have I made mistakes? Many times. But you see, if you are not willing to trip and to fall, then you will forever be content sucking on the milk bottle of the Word. Then you will not work the works of righteousness. You'll be nice people. You'll be nice Christians. But I think the Lord has something more for all of us. We look at the works of righteousness and immediately, you, depending on your mindset, you look at these again, huh, must work. Huh? I thought, no need. Jesus has done it all. Man. I'm already saved. I'm already righteous. I don't have to do anything already. Now, can I say this once again? We don't do these things to be counted righteous. But because I'm already righteous, then it's expected of me to work righteous works. It's expected of us. If you are righteous, what kind of works will you do? Righteous works. So 1 John, every time you read 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, remember that John was already a rather senior man. So his words have weight. And he says it very clearly in chapter 2, 28 to 29. Now, little children, that's why he's got the credibility to be able to say that. I can't say that at this point. Now, little children, abide in him, remain in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, this verse should make you scratch your head. You know? Why should I be ashamed? I'm righteousness already, what? I have the righteousness in Christ, what? Why should I be ashamed? You mean I'll be ashamed, huh? Don't be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. He is righteous. So if you say you are born of Him who is righteous, then you will be naturally practicing or working righteousness. Then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 7 of 1 John. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Which means someone was going out there deceiving, saying that you don't have to do these things. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Now, think about this for a while, right? Because we keep thinking, I don't have to do anything to be righteous. But John is saying, if you say you're righteous, then you will practice righteousness. So by that argument, the one who practices righteous will then show that he is truly righteous. So no point declaring you are the righteousness of God, God's righteousness is upon you, and then don't do anything that the Lord tells you to do. Then he's no longer righteous. Then are you really born of him? Don't let anyone deceive you. I don't care how long we've sat in the church. I don't care how much tithe we've given. Don't let anyone deceive you. Amen? These are works of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 talks about the Scripture instructing us in righteousness. But in 17, it says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Would that be works of righteousness? I believe so. I believe so. Because if you are hungry for righteousness, you will be hungry to do His will. It, it goes hand in hand. 
You remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? Jesus was tired. He rests at the well. He has an encounter with her, or rather the other way, she has an encounter with him. And later on, she runs off. The disciples come back. It's a really cute scene. I mean, if there's a, if there's a comedy break uh, in, in the Bible, this is it, right? The disciples come back. Are you hungry or not, Jesus? Then he says, no, no, I'm not hungry, you know. I have food to eat of which you do not know. Then the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Who tapau? I know, he called uh, panda or something. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Friends, if you are hungry and you're thirsting after righteousness, you will be hungry and thirsty to do the work of the Father. Because that is your food. That is your drink. Beyond anything else, that is what is going to be pushing you. See, in our language, I call this kingdom assignments. These are works of righteousness. It can be a very small task. It can be a much bigger one, but these are kingdom assignments. Wherever the Lord sends you, wherever He brings you, Jesus was heading back and, and, and it says in the Bible that He had to pass through Samaria. It was a no-go zone for the Jews and yet His work of righteousness involved Him going into a place that was in those days out of bounds for Jews. I'm going to go deeper into this understanding of kingdom assignments and a little bit more in understanding these works of righteousness. When I'm, when I'm going to show you this next part, I pray that our hearts will be open. You see, what's happening in our world today? Our world emphasizes rights. Salvation and the kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's not about rights. But the world is constantly emphasizing rights. Now, do you want to know what the foundation or the origin of these human rights, where did it come from? It is a Christian concept. Human rights is primarily a Christian concept that seeks to protect human dignity from forms of oppression. It is founded upon the principle that every person is made in the image of God. And because we are all made in the image of God, we need to accord each other that dignity and that respect because in God, we have those rights. Now today, because of postmodern thinking, that has shifted. Sadly, many things you see, the foundation has always been Judeo-Christian principles. But with the mindset that has been shifting, the worldview that's been shifting, it's now moved to personal rights and freedom. What does that mean? It means now to the average person, I have my rights. I get to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. This is what I mean by rights gone wrong. Let me give you some examples. This is a demonstration by a group of women with a huge statement that says, my body, my choice. Ladies, do you know what this is campaigning about? It's about abortion. They are campaigning for their right to abort babies. They are saying, look, this is my right. As a woman, I have a right. Don't you 
pressed down on me. Don't give your male chauvinist views upon me. As a woman, I'm strong. Hear me raw. I can take my own decisions. It is my own body. If I want to abort, I will abort because it is my right to protect my personal freedom. It is my right to advance in my career. It is my right to preserve the lifestyle that I like to have. It's my right to keep my body in the shape that I've worked so hard with a personal trainer for. Can you see the problem? Now, this to them would be rights. Do you think it's crept into the church? I think so. Maybe it has not gone to an extreme of abortion for some people, but do you think we, we argue in the same way? What we declare as rights today is really unrighteousness. If you're looking at abortion and you're campaigning for the rights of this because, you know, as a woman we must stand with my sister, then what you're doing is really supporting unrighteousness because God says if you take a life, that's murder. That's God's law. It's as clear as it can be. As I was preparing this message, this piece of news came up on the internet. It really shocked me. This lady said that Jesus would hold women's hands to support them during abortion. She is termed as an abortionist. Now let me read for you some of the words that she has used. She has appealed to the court that Jesus would be supportive of abortions. In fact, he will be right there by your side to hold your hand as you abort your baby. She runs seven abortion facilities. In case you think she's not a Christian, she is one. And she's been raised with this thinking that this is how Jesus is. And she's mission-driven by her commitment to human rights and to justice. What's justice in our words today? Righteousness. She's committed to that. Can you see how crazy the world has become? Let's look at relationships at home in the marriage. Today, if we are not careful, if the man enforces his right, if the woman enforces her right, then the marriage then does not survive because you are really having two different sets of agenda. There's no kingdom purpose. There's no kingdom mission. There's no unity between these two. And you're fighting against each other. As you counsel people, who are on the verge of divorce, you hear this often many, many times. It is my right to be happy. It is my right to be, to be free. You know, it's my right not to take all these kind of nonsense from him or from her. You see, what we call as rights, this is really unrighteousness because if you follow God's standard, then in the marriage, there has to be mutual submission. And that submission to one another is not because this person is better or that person is stronger. The, the Bible actually tells us in Ephesians that the, that the submission is to one another out of reverence to who Christ is. You are submitting to a greater cause, to a greater purpose. You are submitting to a king who stands for righteousness. And if you, if you refuse to do that, then you are blatantly rebelling against his righteous standard and his righteous ways. We know this very well in another group, of course. Um, today, we fight for gender rights and equality. And again, it started, correct, from a Judeo-Christian point of view, where women were being oppressed. And through Jesus Christ, the place of women would be redeemed into the same, uh, we're, we're created equal, we're created in the image of God, right? But if you take that without the counsel of God, then you push it to another extreme, 
then every gender is the same. And since it's the same, then you, you have your rights to marry male and female. Why are you stopping my right to marry male and male or female and female? Bill Mullenberg just posted something that he stumbled upon this site. I, I, can't, remember, I can't remember the address at this point, but I, I searched it just now. I was shocked. There are about 112 categories of gender. Now, the Bible, it says God made them male and female. Today, you have 112 gender categories. Why? Because it is your right. If you feel you like to be a dog, be a dog. There's this guy over in Australia. He surgically removed his ears because he thought he believed he was born a bird. I mean, we laugh at these things. It's like, man, where do these guys come from? The rights movement. This is unrighteousness that is prevailing in our society. Closer to home. If you have noticed... Um, children who have become defiant, that they are rebellious. You say one thing, they look at you with that face, right? Uh, and you're not allowed to touch this boy or this girl anymore. In certain countries, corporal punishment is banned. You so much as lift a finger or lay a hand upon this, this child and you are found out you can be arrested or your children can be removed from you for their protection for their rights. And so today we have children's rights. They have a freedom to speak their minds. They have a freedom to do whatever they want to do and you cannot do anything about it. What does the Bible say? What is the right way to raise a child? We have got big problems, friends. And you know something? We are seeing this also in the church. We are seeing this in the church. I could go on, there are just so many examples, but I, I'm helping you see this. You get my point? That as you are hungry and you're thirsting for righteousness, don't let a wrong worldview cloud you from what is really unrighteousness that is there where you think you might still be right in. Or we are, you are being deceived into thinking that, you know, we are in la-la land, everything is righteous, everything is cool, everything is nice. Let's not focus so much on the sin these days. It makes me feel lousy. Salvation is always about unrighteousness to righteousness. Amen? And once you are clothed with the righteousness of God, you become righteous, you will begin to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Friends, is this any surprise? Is this any surprise? It's not. Because Jesus declared this, that in the end, lawlessness, lawlessness will abound. If righteousness is lawfulness, then lawlessness is unrighteousness. Simple as that. Unrighteousness will abound. You can bet your last dollar on this. Just don't be a part of it. But we are called to be trees of righteousness amidst the unrighteousness. Will someone say amen? We are called to be trees and oaks of righteousness, pillars. The church is to be the pillar and a ground of truth. Now what is truth? Truth, when acted out, is righteousness. You can't run away from it. 
The entire book is about righteousness. The entire Bible is about that. Why did Adam fall? How did he do it? Unrighteousness. He disobeyed. God said, this is the standard. He violated it. Unrighteousness. You see that? Right at the end, who's going to come? The king of righteousness. Let's look at this. Righteousness amidst unrighteousness. Now, we read this verse just now in Romans chapter 1 about the good news of the kingdom. Now, Paul says, In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. Now, he's quoting Old Testament. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. This is taken from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Now, many times when we quote Habakkuk chapter 2, we only know the one that says, this is the vision, write it down. Oh, every leader must have vision. Every church must have vision. And then they stop. They don't quote this last part. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. So what comes before this phrase? There's a vision. Hold on to it. Keep going. It may appear late, but it will come. What appears after this? Go back and read your Bible. Woe is this man who is like that. Woe is that man. Woe is this. Woe is that. The prophet was declaring unrighteousness. But he's saying here, the righteous live by your faith in the midst of unrighteousness. Stay with me, yeah? In the New Testament, Hebrews quotes the same thing. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Oh, someone needs to underline that. After you have done the will of God. You mean must do something? Yes! After you have done the will of God, you will receive the promise. So stop declaring you will receive the promise if you are not doing the will of God. For yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. What comes after that? But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Why did the writer of Hebrews write this and use this one verse from Habakkuk in its context? Because the Christians were going through hell. They were surrounded by unrighteousness. They were the victims of unrighteousness. Follow? And the writer is saying, you are righteous. Live by that faith. Live by that faith. And that's why in Habakkuk, he cries out, the prophets, how long? How long? How long do I have to be righteous amidst this unrighteous people? It's very difficult, you know. The writer of Hebrews, after chapter 10, writes chapter 11, by faith you must do this. By faith you must do that. And at the end he says, there are those who live by faith and they were still whacked. They were still sawn into two. They lost their children. They did not receive the promise. You hang on to this hope that you have. Live as righteous people amidst a world that is unrighteous. Is there work to be done? Yes. And yet you and I keep crying out, when Lord, when Lord. And here comes the promise, you see. Let me zoom in for you. Habakkuk says, it will not tarry. Hebrew says, it will not tarry. But you see, we don't like, we don't like that answer. We want to know when. I can only have one line for you. I said, don't worry, 
it will be just in time. Amen? It will be just in time. Righteousness will prevail and it will be just. It will be righteous and it will be at the right time because God is never late. Amen? You see, this is what we are looking for and this is what we are looking toward. It will be just in time. To us, it's like, man, this is tough, man. This is difficult, man. If you are in an unrighteous relationship, you know what I mean. If you are in a situation that's caused by unrighteousness and you want to bail out of that, you know what I mean, right? It's difficult to live righteous in a society that is unrighteous. But let me give you hope. Because in the meantime, although you don't see things coming your way, and you're living as right as you can, walking in the ways of righteousness, doing in the work of righteousness, you know what is being produced? Your difficulties and your challenge, they are producing the fruit of righteousness. That's why Hebrews in chapter 12 goes on to say, no chastening, no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Habakkuk at the end, oh, he writes and breaks out in a hymn. Although the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. You know, it's, it's, it's really saying, Lord, I'm, you say got food. I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing. Don't worry. Praise the Lord. Hang on to Him. Live righteously. Live by your faith. The fruit will come. When? Just in time. Hallelujah. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Jesus doesn't stop there. For they shall be filled. See, this is the promise of the blessedness of the kingdom. This word filled is better translated in the ESV and the NASB as satisfied. For they shall be satisfied. There are many times where, you know, I, I craved for coffee. Say amen. And then you go to that coffee place and then you take that coffee and it's bad coffee. You're not satisfied, right? You may have had your fill of that coffee, but you're not satisfied. You can go to a restaurant and you eat all you want. You can fill yourself to the brim. But if it's not nice, if it's not good, then you're not satisfied. All you have is indigestion. Very, very uncomfortable. And so it's not a state of blessedness. It's a state of bloatedness. But here Jesus is saying, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. It's going to be good. Satisfaction guaranteed. And the word satisfied or filled is from a word that actually means grass or hay. Now, I know this is not appetizing to you right now. Okay? But listen to this. Grass or hay. I looked at this and I said, hallelujah. You know why? This is horse talk. Come on, Akipasas, do you understand what I mean? Can we praise the Lord for this? 
See, if you are a sheep or you're a horse, I mean, you will love this hay, right? If you're hungering after this, you, you, will, you will eat till you are satisfied. So our keepers says, can I tell you, if you are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and you're doing the works of, of the kingdom, righteous works of the kingdom, this is the promise I have for you. You will be satisfied. Hallelujah. See, the promise is this. If we hunger for His righteousness, we will be filled with His righteousness. Please don't go prosperity gospel. Huh? And, and suddenly you say, oh, I'm hungering for righteousness. I'm going to hunger for I do. I will get my money. I'll get my house. And this is a wrong understanding. But please understand that living right does not mean you will never be wronged. You've got to hang in there. But let me push it all the way to the end. And this is where I, I, I love it when you take Scripture and really you, you study and you put them side by side. Look at the satisfaction that we can look forward to. The first is found in Revelations chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. There is going to be a marriage of the Lamb and the bride. And it says here that His wife has made herself ready. We spoke about readiness just now, right? And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Here comes the symbolism and explanation. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It's the righteous works. It's the works of the saints. If you study about the bride, I tell you, it's going to surprise you. It might even scare you. Because today we have generalized this term. But it says here, the bride will be granted to be arrayed in fine linen, which would be the righteous works. Satisfaction guarantee is going to be a good marriage because he's a good husband, amen? Secondly, how about those people who have given us so much problems? Jesus comes on a white horse. He is called faithful and true, Revelations 19 verse 11. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war and he's going to win. The third thing we see, we find in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, He will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who loved His appearing. Now many people read this verse and they think, you know, we are Christians, we want Jesus to come. Let me tell you something. If you have not done what He has asked you to do, you won't be asking Him to come. You won't be very happy when He comes. That's why we read just now, it says that when you meet Him, you will not be ashamed. You've got to put Scripture together. Let it interpret Scripture from Scripture. What is the verse before verse 8 here? Paul says, I finished the race. I have fought the good fight. I've done my assignment. The fourth thing is that we'll see new heavens and we will have new earth. And 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, We look to this promise as we look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Are you convinced? It's all about righteousness. That's why you've got to know what it means. You have to know what it stands for. You have to know your place. And you have to know your function. So let's conclude Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let me say once again, Jesus, the King of righteousness, invites all to this blessedness. 
You know, he says in Isaiah 55, right? Oh, those of you who are thirsty, come. I'm that water. And when you get that water, you will never thirst again. He says, I, I'm the bread of life. If you partake of this bread, then you will never be hungry again. So your cravings will no longer be for the things of the world. Your cravings will be for me, who is the king of righteousness and the works that I will give to you. Works of righteousness. But as we close, let me just say this, that for many of us, in fact, for all of us, righteousness, let's be honest, is an acquired taste. We prefer unrighteousness. Don't, don't say amen. We are more comfortable with unrighteousness. Righteousness is an acquired taste. Now, I'm growing a little bit older, and I realize my taste buds have changed. And we do that when we mature, amen? And similarly, I believe that when we grow in Christ, more and more as we draw into His presence of righteousness, our taste buds will change. We will hunger more and more, and we will thirst more and more for righteousness. From that, we practice righteousness in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in the society. Be the righteousness of God amidst unrighteousness. What is God saying to you this evening? What is God showing you in terms of assignments? Do you think He would stir your heart to say, maybe there's one aspect there that I should be moving into to work works of righteousness? But we don't do it legalistically. We don't do it outwardly just like the Pharisees. But we have to do it with mercy and grace. That's the next beatitude, right? We have to do it sincerity with purity of heart. And we have to do it with peace. And finally, when we reach B8, get ready that when you practice righteousness, get ready for pushback and for persecution. It won't be easy, but remember this. You are blessed. You are blessed. And we can look forward to righteousness reigning and coming for all of us. When? Just in time. It will be in His time. And it's going to be good. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this Word. It's always been about righteousness, Lord. Lord, as we come before You, we are convicted by Scripture. And we ask You to forgive us. Because if we be honest, we've made it all about us. If we be honest, O oh Lord, we have rationalized our unrighteousness. All because we have received the imputation of your righteousness. But Lord, I pray, will you begin to stir and awaken us again this evening. That Lord, as we have heard the word, let the word cut deep within our hearts, Lord. Let it not be a word of condemnation because in Christ we do not have that. But let it be a word of conviction, O oh Lord. That as you stir us, O oh Lord, you will give us this acquired taste of what righteousness is. That when we see unrighteousness all around us, Lord, it becomes glaring, it becomes obvious, O oh Lord. But Lord, do not let us be judgmental, critical people just to point fingers. But Lord, will we go into your presence and ask, O oh Lord, what is that work of righteousness you have assigned to me? Because Lord, I am your servant and I'm here to obey all that you give to me. So Lord, as we close this evening, may we carry this within our hearts, Lord, and continue, Lord, to speak to us and let this word take root, Lord. Let it have its effect upon us in the days and the months ahead. We thank you for the righteousness of Jesus. We thank you for the grace that has been showered upon us so freely. But Lord, let us not receive this in vain. May we live for you. 
as you enable us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.